Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? Today, we are talking about emotional abuse, not necessarily a fun topic, but an absolutely necessary topic. So here's why this is important. Here's why I put a lot of emphasis on this particular topic when I am doing workshops, courses, whatever it may be around stress trauma in the brain. There's a saying called students must, or kids must, or people must Maslow before they can bloom. If you're in education, you're probably familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Bloom's taxonomy. You would have had them in an ed psych class. But for those of you who aren't, Maslow's hierarchy of needs are just your basic biological, psychological needs. You have food, water, shelter, sleep, love, attention, affection, connection, all those things. Bloom's taxonomy are those higher order thinking skills or just really all the thinking skills, but include the higher order thinking skills, all the things that we push in education. So because we are biological beings first, not logical. Maslow's hierarchy of needs have to be met before people can access the thinking skills of Bloom's taxonomy. Our brains are hardwired to keep us safe first and not just physical safety, but psychological safety, which is why it is so important to talk about this particular topic in education, in family systems, all of it, because I think there's just a lack of awareness of what is considered emotional abuse. Therefore, we continue to use things that that are emotionally abusive without really knowing that they are hurtful and damaging and really deepening likely already present psychological scars. So what I want you to really think about is that behaviors are not the result of moral or personality flaws or signs of lack of willpower or bad character. They are caused by chemical changes in the brain. So That means the brain is culturally responsive, meaning it completely reorients itself. It chemically changes just based on the environment that it's in. So if a child comes from a troubling environment, challenging environment into your environment, that's a classroom or wherever it is, and you provide a loving safety net for them to be caught in, they will, their brains will change their chemical systems in their bodies will change and they can kind of be rewired to be successful just based on us creating like a responsive system that meets their needs. Okay, so let's jump in here to emotional abuse. What does it look like? It looks like unrealistic expectations. What does that mean? It means that especially kids with high stress, trauma, they don't have the capacity or the brain space to listen, attend, retain as much as their peers might. 
So having the same expectations for everyone in the entire class, when everyone doesn't come from the same genetic background, the same environmental background is and can be a form of emotional abuse. So, so let's go fast forward. Or let me, let me give you an example. I have worked in early intervention for quite a few years. I'm really passionate about getting help to kids early. When I go into preschool programs, let's say a, a threes, a threes preschool program, there have been educators who have required those three-year-olds to sit for over 20 minutes for a circle time or a learning period or whatever it may be, and then reprimand and scold kids who can't sit for those 20 minutes. 20 minutes is an unrealistic expectation for the entire class to be sitting. Three-year-olds should not be sitting for more than three to five minutes. But especially for those kids that have those like labeled behavioral problems, they definitely can't sit that long because they can't attend that long. Their, their brain is seeking other things. Maybe it's seeking attention because they're not getting it home. Maybe it's stressed out about God knows what they're experiencing. So to, to require them to have the expectation for them to sit for 20 minutes is unrealistic. And therefore it can cause additional stress, poor reactions, and, and it turns up being a form of emotional abuse. So just check your expectations. Do they meet kids where they are? Showing hostility. It's not one I see so much in education, but one I do see more in the home setting, but one I see frequently, almost almost daily, but definitely weekly, is threatening. I will see teachers and parents offer threats that I don't think they realize are threatening, but they absolutely are. So here's an example. Like if a teacher says to a child, either you can clean that up or I will clean that up. That's not a choice. That's a threat. Because a choice is when two options are offered that are fair and motivating to the child. When you tell a child, you can clean it up or I'll clean it up. One, if they're already not cleaning it up, that's not a fair and motivating choice. Two, if you're telling them you're going to clean it up, you're taking away your power and you're taking away their power and control and you're threatening them. Do this or you'll lose your recess. That's a threat. There are all kinds of threats that we offer. So being mindful of if you are offering choices or want to offer choices and they are threats, you need to make sure that your choice options are fair and motivating. If not, it's likely a threat. Threats don't work because when you back kids into a corner who are already stressed out, it only stresses them out more. Blaming and shaming. So you did versus you are. Kids, we need to be very careful with our language because they are developing so rapidly and their messaging to themselves is unlearned. So blaming and shaming. You are a bad kid. That talks about personality. That talks about addresses who, who someone is personality-wise harder to change versus you did something bad or maybe you made a poor choice. So try to use more of the you did this because those are behaviors. Those are things that we can change easily, but you are this thing it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that tells them they aren't good at, or they won't be, or they can't be this thing, or that they are stuck in this negative thing. So being very mindful of our, our language around shaming and blaming. Humiliating surprisingly comes up quite a bit. Humiliation. Here's an example of, I, I saw it used by a mentor teacher 10 years ago, uh, teaching kindergarten. Kids were picking their nose. It's a natural thing kids do, <laughs> kindergarten age group. And when kids would pick their nose in his classroom, he would point at them and say, nose minor, nose minor. 
although the rest of the class laughed and he laughed. It was humiliating to the child who was picking their nose that was getting called out in front of everyone. There's a much better way to address that instead of humiliating that child in front of everyone else. Minimizing their strong feelings. I see this, I see this done more probably in, like with older kids. We think that they should control their feelings, emotions better. We tell them that they're being dramatic. If they have feelings, whether or not we agree with them, we can't minimize them. We have to instead validate them. We validate their feelings. They soften, they come down, the feelings get, uh, they diminish. So don't minimize kids' feelings, even if you don't agree with them. Favoring children. This one's hard because it's it's one that I realized I was doing without really consciously being aware of. We naturally want to be around kids who are easier to get along with, who are kinder, gentler, softer, loving, but trying not to withdraw attention from those kids who take a lot of our energy and are a little bit more challenging and trying not to give an overabundance of energy to those kids that are much easier to be around. Be mindful of, of your energy giving. Withholding affection. This relates kind of to favoring. We tend to withhold affection from kids who are more challenging because they're harder to be around and take more energy. They suck the life out of us at times. Being aware of that because those are the part of the kids that need the most attention, affection, love, all of those things. So be mindful of your withholding and try to consciously counteract that uh, by giving yourself small doses and breaks away from those kids. Yelling and swearing. Again, not something I see so much in education, more in family systems, but there's really no benefit to yelling at a child ever unless they are in danger because yelling activates the stress response. And if they're already stressed out, it's just going to make things worse. The only time that it is appropriate to yell is when a child is in danger because we do want to activate the stress response because we want to save them from getting hurt. Mocking students is another. Insulting students. Again, I see this one more in older grade levels where people are um, kind of insulting students to be funny and the students might laugh or chuckle just because they're embarrassed or uncomfortable, but insulting students is never appropriate. So let me go through this list real quick. What is emotional abuse? Unrealistic expectations, showing hostility, threatening, blaming and shaming, humiliating, minimizing, favoring, withholding affection, yelling and swearing, mocking, and insulting. So what happens when we use those tactics on kids who are already stressed out? Well, they develop these effects of abuse, which can be anxiety and or depression. They can get more angry and rageful. They experience more stress. It might, it might flash them back to a traumatic or stressful memory. They have a lack of self-awareness. They're not heard. They're not seen. They're not validated. They have a low self-esteem. They have low self-confidence. They develop per- develop perfectionistic behaviors and become people pleasers. They have fear of failure. They might start to act out sexually. They might develop unrealistic guilt. They might even start to self-harm or develop eating disorders. These are all effects of abuse and it doesn't necessarily mean just emotional abuse but all forms of abuse so if you see those things in students you can probably guess that there's something that's misaligned there's something that's not right there's something that needs to be chemically altered in the body system to correct the underlying need or issue 
Okay, that was a lot of information, but hopefully you have a good idea of what is considered emotional abuse. What I would ask you to do is kind of just maybe pause, rewind, re-listen, go through that list of things of emotional abuse, check off in your mind, which ones do you do? Because it's likely that we all might do at least one of them. I mean, when I first read the list, I was like, wow, not knowingly, I do some of these things. So that brought me into awareness. Once I was into awareness, I thought, okay, now that I'm aware that I do this, I need to be proactive about changing. So I'm going to work on replacing these behaviors, actions, things that are emotional abuse with these new behaviors. I'm going to give myself grace when I screw it up because I'm going to mess it up. And then I will go back, try again, get it right. The more I do it, the more natural it becomes, the more I stop doing those other things. So important. Can you be, can you imagine being in an environment every day at school where it just doesn't feel good to be this, this will help kids feel better about being in these spaces. And that takes us to today's listener question, which is, I have my own diagnosis of anxiety and I also teach preschool. So what do I do and what can I do to reduce my anxiety, especially around the preschool age group and the anxiety it causes? Okay. So first of all, I think it's helpful to know if you are an anxious person or a depression, depressive, more prone to depression person. Anxiety comes from being stuck in the future. We are thinking about all of these things that haven't happened yet. Your mind is stuck in the future. Depression, your mind is stuck in the past. You're grieving what was and no longer is. So figure out where you are. Are you kind of in the future or are you in the past? What will heal both anxiety and depression? Bringing yourself to the present because the present brings you out of the future and out of the past. So what can you do in your daily life every day or when you're feeling anxious that helps to bring you to the present? What are some things that I do? Uh, Go for walks, go for bike rides, go to the gym, drink water, read a book, meditate, take a nap, cook, eat something that has a, a sensory component like crunchy or chewy. I might play with my baby. I might go out with friends. Anything I can do to bring myself to the present. So become aware of when you're feeling anxious, do something to bring yourself to the present. The more you do that, it will become a stable state, meaning you will feel less and less and less anxious the more and more and more you bring yourself to the present. Okay, to wrap up the show, I am going to share with you our try at home tip, which is affirmations. And these can be verbal affirmations to yourself. They can be written affirmations, but they are things that we say to ourselves to help boost our self-esteem, our self-confidence, and just treat ourselves kindly because our brains are like supercomputers and the way we talk to ourselves is is the program that your supercomputer brain runs so if you don't talk kindly to yourself or you don't talk to yourself at all and and affirm the things that you are or want to be you're kind of running an outdated program in your brain computer so what i do is I put sticky note affirmations up around uh, my space or I put them in my phone, in my calendar and alert, have the, the calendar alert me of the affirmations. Something really fun that I do is uh, we have a shower pad. So it's actually a, a pad of paper that you can write on in the shower. It's waterproof and the um, sticky notes or the, the pad notes stick to the wall. So we'll write affirmations there. That way we see them because we get the shower every day. So great place to visually put them to see them every day. And that is it for today's episode of Returning to Us Podcast. Remember our try at home tip, which is affirmations, verbal or written. And if you are looking for more support in the areas of stress, 
trauma behavior in the brain. I'd love to be a part of that learning journey with you and for you. Behavior Hub offers a variety and range of supports, coaching from coaching to online courses to group training programs, even university credit from an Ivy League school. Learn more by shooting me a text at 717-693-7744. And if you have any questions you would like me to answer on a future show, email me at lauren at thebehaviorhub.com. Don't forget to lock in what you learned today by sharing it with someone else, by commenting on it below, by resharing this episode and talking about it with someone. Don't let it slip away. This is super important. Lock it in your brain. Until next episode, I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, and thanks for joining me.